Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Today's guest, Emily Flitter, covers banking and Wall Street for the New York Times. In 2018, she received a tip that Morgan Stanley had fired a black employee without cause, and that led her to investigate the situation she's written about in her new book, White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. It's published by One Signal Books and brings Emily Flitter to our show now. Welcome. Around the the, the, the time that you... Uh, received that tip that Morgan Stanley had fired a black employee without cause. Weren't most uh, finance co- reporters covering the sexual discrimination Me Too stories on Wall Street? That's correct. Me Too was in full swing. And our editors at the Times uh, were wondering why the Me Too movement hadn't really hit Wall Street. So they asked us to look for stories that might have been suppressed. But you uh, decided to focus on racism. Had you already been researching racism in the American financial industry at that time? I had not. I went to a lawyer who handled discrimination cases. I thought she might have some tips on some good sexual harassment or gender discrimination cases. And I said, this is what I'm looking for. And she said, you're making a mistake. Racial discrimination cases are way worse. Racial discrimination itself is way worse on Wall Street these days. And you write that the racism in banking and finance is perhaps the devastating force that prevents black Americans from gaining equal footing in the United States. That's correct, because every part of the financial system has this element of resistance to uh, black uh, customers and employees, the um, effort that it takes just to get regular business done if you're black is so much greater than if you're white. It's harder to do regular banking business. It's harder to succeed in high paying careers on Wall Street. It's harder to insure your home and actually get a payout when something goes wrong and you make a claim. A prominent lawyer told you the racial discrimination is so bad, and you describe it as almost being the white-collar version of somebody filming police brutality. That's true. The reason I made that comparison is that racist incidents happen a lot in the white-collar world. But unless somebody records them and saves the proof, it's really hard to get anyone to believe that they happened. I I was fortunate enough to be connected with a J.P. Morgan Chase employee who had really nailed it with his recordings. He knew that uh, what was happening to him at work was wrong, and he used his iPhone to re- to erase any doubt that what he was describing was really going on. When he recorded his boss saying racist things, he recorded the HR response to his discrimination complaint and how gaslighting they were, how, you know, how they engaged in um, efforts to kind of undermine the date on which he made the claim and just just so doubt about whether he was a believable person. J.P. Morgan pops up a lot in this book, um, but also BlackRock, Wells Fargo and other uh major companies, and uh, a lot of insurance companies. 
That's right. Um, insurance companies aren't regulated by the federal government. They have 50 different regulators. Each one is far, far less powerful than the federal government and rather inept when compared to big bank regulators. Insurers are also loath to share data on how their how they work and and who gets their claims paid out. They've managed to keep so much out of the public view that no one can check to see what they're doing. What I found they were doing was giving black customers a really hard time uh, before they would pay out any money on claims. And the money that they were paying out in many cases was smaller. So in the insurance industry, uh, discrimination is a really big problem, and it doesn't seem like there's much being done to address it. In recent decades, hasn't the racial wealth gap worsened rather than improved? It has certainly not gotten any better since 1968. Everyone uh, thinks that it's gotten better, and when I say everyone, um, I'm generalizing the results of a Yale study that found that the majority of Americans don't even know there is a racial wealth gap. That's because we have a racial progress narrative in this country that sort of has this fairy tale ending. We had discrimination in the past, we had unequal treatment in the past, but that's all fixed now is the racial progress narrative. And that's just not true. And according to the Federal Reserve, the typical white household holds over 10 times the wealth of a typical black and Latino household. That's so, correct. So is the the racial wealth gap <laughs> comparable to what was happening in the Jim Crow era? I mean, look, the um the Jim Crow era was an era of terror. We had Black Wall Street in Tulsa completely destroyed. People died, businesses were burnt to the ground. Um are we seeing pogroms in this country right now? No, what we're seeing is um, really subtle and yet still incredibly powerful uh, locking out of black business owners and black customers. And like I said, black employees from the opportunities to uh, create and grow wealth. So it's really hard, for instance, for a black startup founder to get the same kind of funding that a white startup founder can get. I mean, Look at Silicon Valley, look at Adam Newman, who ran WeWork into the ground and then got hundreds of millions of dollars in new money to go do something else. The stories like that don't exist about black founders. You, uh, One thing the book makes clear is how much the finance industry relies on trust and feelings to make assessments about customers. In the U.S., of course, that is a huge problem for black Americans trying to access capital and get, get their homes appraised or even access basic banking services. That's true. I obtained emails that J.P. Morgan Chase tellers sent to each other, warning each other about potentially suspicious customers who might come into their branches. You write about In bank it, tellers making judgments based on appearance over whether or not a customer's check might get cashed. That's right. And that's not to say that there aren't people out there who are bad actors who are trying to scam banks. It happens all the time. But the emails that really stood out to me were the ones where 
no bad behavior was described, but the person's physical appearance was described and that person was black. Yeah, uh, well, I uh, bank at J.P. Morgan Chase. There are a fair number of people of color at my local branch. But uh, are we talking about a national issue here? Absolutely. I think it's a national issue. I think it's built into the way these institutions function and it won't change unless these institutions adopt a really uh, above board message to all of their employees and their customers about how racism still affects people today and what they want to do to participate in changing it. I actually argue that the big financial institutions should use their lobbying power in Washington to support reparations. How much is the racial gap the result of hiring and layoff practices? Have they been specifically designed to keep black employees from advancing to higher levels? Well, it's interesting that you put it that way. Hiring is something the banks are really proud of. They've increased their hiring of non-white employees. But once those employees get into the ranks of these huge institutions, they find that the barriers are still there. I've spoken to people across the industry who say that black employees in all kinds of specific areas of these huge institutions need more support and they need to have the acknowledgement that they are at a disadvantage compared to their white colleagues in so many ways. And, and that support has not come from the banks. I would assume that they're less likely to make the kinds of judgments you talk about based on appearance over whether or not a customer's checks would get cashed. The large institutions? Uh, the, well, uh, whether some whether the employee is is a person of color or not, um, because um, you you write about black bank customers who try to cash checks and instead wind up getting security called in. I'd imagine that isn't from a black teller. Well, actually, I wouldn't make that assumption. Um, that would be, uh, sort of drawing that line would be akin to drawing the line between the racial makeup of a police force and the number of police brutality incidents. Once you are in an institution like that, you start to think like the institution. That's why I believe we can't actually change any of these institutions by simply setting standards for representation in them. The entire institutions have to change their attitude toward these practices, just like police forces have to change how they interact with members of the community in a major way. So just having a black teller is definitely not enough. You report about employees at Edward Jones who worked from the kitchen table or car with no office. They were kept out of the public eye? The Edward Jones employees uh, were trying to make back the amount of money that Edward Jones said they spent training them. And uh, the 
the the black employees realized that they weren't getting the same kind of leg up that the white employees were getting. White employees at Edward Jones who started out were actually being given books of business by retiring financial advisors. That's a really important thing in the in the world of financial advisors. When you start out, you have to find people who are wealthy enough that they have money for you to manage so you can earn the commissions and other kinds of fees that wealth managers earn to pay their own bills. And if you don't get help, you actually can't do it that well, especially with Edward Jones's model, which was to literally wander around neighborhoods knocking on doors, kind of like a traveling salesman. So the people who I wrote about uh, who were in this program at Edward Jones, including a woman named Felicia Slayton Young, who had had a successful financial career before she joined them, found that their bills were mounting and the, their income was shrinking. So yes, Felicia ended up having to choose between moving out of her house and sleeping in her car because she couldn't pay her rent or giving up the car. And she actually chose to give up the car. Uh, Understandably. Uh, You also uh, write about a financial firm that claimed an employee's claim of discrimination couldn't be true because the firm had a policy of not tolerating discrimination. Can we just simply believe that kind of statement? No, that is a, when I started this project, I had heard lots of statements like that. And I thought they were sort of corporate puffery and nothing more, but they actually carry legal weight. I found that if companies have what they call policies and procedures in place to prevent discrimination or address it when it happens, it actually offers them legal protection from people claiming that they experienced discrimination. This this is a, a sort of paradoxical um, condition that corporate America has managed to bring about by um, basically arguing it over and over in court and getting judges to rule that this is sufficient. So I tell the story of a black uh, investment banker at Standard Chartered who is so fed up with the way he's being treated by his boss and how discriminatory it is that he writes to the CEO of the entire bank, Bill Winters, who is actually the a former JP Morgan uh, executive, and says, you know, I uh, this is what's been happening to me. This is why I'm so sure it's discrimination. Here's a chart. You know, he's a banker. He does a whole PowerPoint presentation. And the CEO just writes back and says, I'm sure that uh, everyone who's involved in your case looked into it and we have no tolerance for racism and discrimination here. So it sounds like this is not a problem. (laughs) You say insurance adjusters rely on feelings to decide if if homeowners claims get paid out. So so much of this is all about... um, the, the feelings of, of uh, somebody who has to make a decision. That's right. Insurance works in a really old fashioned way. And that's not to say that there aren't any automated processes involved, but it um, really comes down to individuals handling these claims cases uh, and trying to decide whether they personally find the claimant believable. And with insurance, um, it's a really simple corporate formula for how you make money. 
you collect money from policy premiums and then you lose money when you actually have to pay a claimant out for something unexpected happening like a flood or a fire. The way you minimize the claims payouts is by rooting out all fraud. And what that has translated into in practice is claims adjusters suggesting, if not outright accusing claimants of fraud. And disproportionately, this seems to happen to black claimants more than it happens to white claimants. And um, we'll look into a a specific case in just a moment after I tell our listeners that this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Emily Flitter, who's written a book called The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. It is published by One Signal Publishers. Um, Didn't Daryl Williams, an apartment building owner in Chicago, file a suit against State Farm in 2019 after it refused to pay for damages after a frozen pipe burst and flooded his building? That's correct. And what's so interesting about Daryl's case is he is describing a downfall. He worked really hard. He built up a small but very important to him portfolio of buildings that he then rented out and that became his business. He went from working as a security guard to being a landlord um, and a, a figure in the community. People lived in his buildings, businesses rented his spaces and this flood happened and he submitted a claim and he says in his lawsuit that the state farm adjuster whom he first dealt with told him that they were suspicious of him that there was a lot of fraud in his neighborhood and and then said really racist insulting things to him when she couldn't get in touch with someone who was living in the building at the time to verify parts of Daryl's story. She said, you know, why can't you get in touch with your homies? Hmm. Daryl. She also, um, when she was asked what she meant by there was a lot of fraud in the area, she said, south side of Chicago and you all's neighborhoods. That's right. I mean, the meaning was clear. clear. She was talking about a black neighborhood. So that doesn't get her in trouble when well, it, when a complaint is issued. It, it what it what Daryl could see was that he just got to talk to a different adjuster after that, um, and that's all he knew. the The really interesting thing, though, about Daryl's case is that State Farm did pay a very very small fraction of the claim. They later said that they think Daryl was just lying about how everything happened. But how, if they thought he was committing fraud, did they get to the decision to pay even a little of the claim? That's where the Mm -hmm. mechanism breaks down. Either it's fraud or it's not fraud. But what they wanted to seem to want to do anyway is to sort of obfuscate the issue, which was that they owed Daryl a lot of money, Um, by suggesting that there was fraud and then just giving him a little scrap and it was nowhere near enough and he lost everything. And you cite data that found insurers consistently paid more claims in white neighborhoods than in black neighborhoods in Chicago. Is that true throughout the United States? Well, we don't know 
how um, how widespread the problem is with claims payouts because insurers won't share this data. The data, the, the, the citation that you just referred to is something that Daryl's lawyer went out and put together himself, and he had only a paltry um, bit of information to work on. He couldn't even narrow his study down to State Farm from among the other insurers. He had to just look at what the Illinois Department of Insurance had collected. All they had was number of claims paid out versus number of claims denied and zip code, and that was the aggregate. Insurers say they can't release specific data about their claims payouts because it's like it would be like sharing the recipe for Coke or Pepsi. It's a trade secret. But the Wall Street Journal found, in fact, insurers share that information with each other all the time in very specific ways. They just keep it safe, locked up in a trade group, and they don't want it to be released to the public. However, they see it from each other. They see each other's data. So the trade secret element seems to be not the real motive for keeping this data out of the public. Do financial institutions ever attempt to take human sentiment out of the picture by applying things like algorithms? Sure, they do. In fact, algorithms are pointed to quite often as a solution to the problem of bias in the financial system. In some cases, they can help. In in the cases where algorithms can look at data in a new way and try to incorporate um, elements of a person's behavior that were left out of a traditional credit underwriting process, there are times when AI can help reduce bias in lending. A great example of that really was the Paycheck Protection Program. It was an aid uh, program that was run early in the coronavirus pandemic that was supposed to get aid to small businesses. Um, The banks were asked to run it, told to run it really by the federal government. And the thought was that they could act as gatekeepers for fraudsters. Black business owners could not get loans from banks through this paycheck protection program um, with the same frequency and ease as white business owners. They had a lot of problems. Where they succeeded was when the human interaction was taken out of them, uh, out of the applications by uh, an online lender. Um, That's not really AI, though. And AI itself is problematic because once you start teaching a computer program to make decisions, that computer program starts to kind of learn from its own past history. If you feed the program data from the real world, you're actually feeding it data about how our world functions, and that world functions with a lot of racial bias. So there are big problems in AI that need to be solved before it can be the solution to this problem. It is interesting. AI stands for artificial intelligence. Uh, you, you write that it's common knowledge that insurance companies routinely look for reasons to deny claims and that poor customers' cases are the easiest to dispose of because those customers are the least likely to fight a denial. People, uh, they're relying on people already feeling a bit beaten down? That's true. I wanted to make that point because, you know, without without noting that, um, 
one might think, well, you know, how can you tell this is really racism? But I actually found examples of wealthy black insurance customers who also had more problems getting their claims paid out. I spoke with a woman who had a pipe burst in her home in California. She's a high up executive. She's the CFO of a, of a food company. She had a BMW in her garage. She had a brand new big house. And yet the insurance adjuster was nickel and diming her over everything, doorknobs, her clothes, a floor that the California law said should be replaced in full that State Farm or it was State Farm only wanted to replace in part. Um, and this is an example that I heard, you know, multiple times. There was a family out in California whose house was destroyed by a fire and an insurance adjuster insisted that they speak under oath about what that what was destroyed in the fire because the adjuster didn't believe that they had bought their sheets and towels from Neiman Marcus. Hmm. So uh, if they had, then the, the sheets and towels would have been worth more than if they had bought it from some local store. That's right. Do, do, the, the, the assumption being, you know, you're a black family and you shopped at this fancy store. I don't believe you. Don't banks routinely issue memos headed, please use caution, that target black customers who are trying to, to cash large checks? That's what we were talking about earlier. Please use caution is the subject line that JP Morgan Chase tellers in the US Northeast, that's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, use to simply warn each other about potential fraudsters in the area. And again, it's as a practice, there's nothing wrong with it in abstract. You are a teller in Yonkers, for instance, and there are six other branches within 10 miles of you. I'm not saying I know for sure there are six branches and 10 miles of Yonkers for JP Morgan Chase, but something like that. Um, if somebody comes in and tries to trick you into giving them money in one branch and then leaves, you want to tell the other branches in the area that this person's around and this is what their scheme is. What I found, as I said earlier, was that the uh, please use caution emails had two kinds of, of customers being described. The kind of customer who's doing something bad on its face, like trying to use a bank card that's already reported stolen. And then the customer who doesn't appear to be doing anything wrong, but is black. Hmm. Those people are also described in the please use caution emails, such as the young man who tried to cash a check and was described as a young African-American male with blonde dreads. He brought this check in. He wanted to cash. The teller didn't believe that it was his check. He got upset and left with the check. And then the teller called the issuer of the check and the issuer said, yes, we actually did write that check to that person. And what is the problem here? And yet this person also got described in the please use caution emails. So is that why check cashing businesses flourish in black neighborhoods? Check cashing businesses, um, and there's a lot of research on this, um, flourish in in poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods for a number of reasons. Well, we're One really is, talking about all people of color here, aren't we? Also Native Americans. Well, when you get into the check cashing issue, 
you are dealing with a lot of different inputs, but my book focuses specifically on black Americans because actually they have unique issues that they face um, that not all non-white people face in the financial system. Redlining, for instance, targeted black communities, not just non-white communities. And our laws that are designed to uh, ensure fair lending, unfortunately, are now expressed with rules that take that specific harm out of the uh, of the rules. And so they haven't actually fixed the problems. So let's talk about redlining for a moment. It applies not just to financial things, but also health care. And uh, it's led to the development of food deserts. So how does it work? Redlining uh, is the term comes from a policy by uh, municipal governments, banks, real estate agents to identify specific neighborhoods that these actors felt did not deserve the same financial services. Um, these neighborhoods, neighborhoods being lar- largely black neighborhoods? Yes, they were black neighborhoods. They were actually marked out on maps. They were marked as riskier. They were marked as low desirability. And that meant that banks didn't want to make loans to people trying to do business in those neighborhoods or buy real estate in those neighborhoods. Property values were lowered. Um, and that was a, a very race-based specific policy that in, endured until the uh, fair lending and civil rights laws in the late 60s and uh, up through the mid-70s um, supposedly outlawed them. However, redlining still exists today. Banks don't want to have branches in low-income neighborhoods. We still live in a very segregated uh, country, and a lot of low-income neighborhoods are majority minority and majority black. Isn't that why black customers can sometimes get the same insurance, because black communities are often seen as devalued? That's correct. I, there is a, a wealth of new research out there on how property assessments are biased against black property owners. It's stunning. The um, values of people's homes are automatically lowered if an assessor sees that the people living in the home are black. And that has an effect on entire neighborhoods. You're listening to Let It Low Paid at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Black rage founded on blatant denial. Sweet economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is founded on wounds in the I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Emily Flitter. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, the book we've been discussing, The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. 
and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Emily Flitter, whose book, White Wall, How Big Business, Big Finance Bankrupts Black America is published by One Signal Publishers. Uh, she covers banking in Wall Street for the New York Times. And Emily, didn't you begin your journalism career as a freelance reporter in Cairo? That's right. I graduated from college and I decided to uh, start my journalism career with a, a little uh, sort of untethered uh, period in Egypt, there the alternative was to work at a newspaper where the salaries were so low that I wasn't going to be able to afford to live in the area. Um, that doesn't say a lot for the state of journalism in the United States, that it was easier for me to move to Egypt and get work and survive than it was to actually work at a small U.S. newspaper. What kinds of stories were you reporting on? I wrote about... Um, uh, my favorite story that I did was about the Bush administration's efforts to uh, increase the desire for democracy among Egyptians by trying to influence what Egyptian school children were being taught in schools through a USAID program that was sort of helping with democracy education in the classroom. The irony was that there was a, a huge um, movement going on while the Bush administration was doing this. Um, that was being led by adults who already knew how great democracy was, and they were uh, protesting in the streets against uh, then-President Hosni Mubarak um, and, you know, demanding a fair vote and uh, all kinds of things that um, Mubarak didn't want to provide. So, uh, you know, it was really um, an amazing time for Egyptians, an amazing thing to watch. Um well, you could now and, uh, re re report on something similar happening in this country where so many people do not appreciate what democracy brings. <laughs> I mean, we, um, I think, all could benefit by um, being foreign correspondents in our own country. It gives you a perspective that sometimes when you're too close to something, you lose. What led you to give your book the title White Wall? Are we talking about a solid barrier? It's almost like the glass ceiling. But the idea came when I was discussing the book uh, with Jess Bruder, who wrote Nomadland. I was telling her how it was structured and what, you know, what was in the chapters and how every chapter kind of built on the previous one to show how a different component of the financial system uh, added to the difficulty that black Americans have getting fair treatment and, uh, you know, building wealth. Um, and she said to me, it sounds like you're describing a wall. And that was it. I, I realized I was. I was describing the wall of whiteness, the white wall that was keeping black Americans from getting to equality. Hasn't there also been a systematic denial of funding to black entrepreneurs? There has. And it's hard to um, it, it's plenty of people have measured it, but it's hard to measure because business loans don't get tracked the same way that mortgage loans are tracked. 
we have a rule in this country, a law called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, where every mortgage loan is reported to the government with all kinds of data attached to it, including race. And that was designed to uh, help the government and outside um, observers, because the, the data is somewhat public, to track um, whether banks were still redlining. And it didn't totally solve the problem. Banks still are not treating uh, mortgage borrowers the same way if they're black, but it helped. We need, there's a push for um, a law like that for business loans because we need a way to track what's happening. Right now we don't, and we still know because it's so obvious and because there have been a lot of um, studies that sort of come at this uh, in different ways that black business owners aren't being treated the same way. The, the best way to measure it now is through mystery shoppers, pairs of black and white borrowers who present themselves at a bank with similar profiles, although the black borrower is usually even a better, higher credit score, better business background than the white borrower, and um, and secretly record how they're being treated by these banks. And it hasn't really uh, looked good for the black borrowers. Wasn't Sheila Johnson one of the wealthiest black people in America? with, uh, you say, a fortune worth hundreds of millions of dollars, denied a loan when she tried to launch a luxury resort? What reason was she given? This was an amazing story that um, a colleague of mine in the industry, Tanzina Vega, told. She spoke with Sheila Johnson, and Sheila told her that when she was trying to start this luxury hotel chain, she was told that she didn't understand the business and wouldn't be successful, even though she was one of the founders of BET and had plenty of business knowledge. Um, again, this is straight up bias. You mentioned the federal government. Uh, does the federal government get involved in this uh, this situation? HUD, for example? The federal government has all kinds of uh, rules implementing fair lending laws. And it, at different periods, um, different under different presidential administrations, these rules are enforced in different ways. We have the CRA. That's um, a, a law that requires banks to do business in neighborhoods that they don't want to do business in. Everybody uh, in banking needs CRA credit. So you have to um, figure out where you're going to make loans and where you're going to make infusions into neighborhoods that um, can't just get regular banking business. The CRA's implementation it kind of takes race out of the picture and just looks at low-income neighborhoods. So there's actually um, a, a, an effort to revamp that now. And the input that different community groups and different um, policymakers are giving to the people who are writing the rule now uh, is that you need to explicitly figure out how to repair the damage done by redlining. And you need to make banks specifically do better business with black customers. Well, considering the fact that we see any number of states gerrymandering to uh, take political power away from black residents, shouldn't we expect this situation to get worse? I think that's where Leonard our, we all have a role to play in this. 
we need to keep talking about this and we need to actually get together and acknowledge publicly how bad it is. We need a truth and reconciliation period in this country. It has to involve reparations and corporate America has to participate in it. That's the only way we're really going to overcome this is if we have the uh, voices coming from all different parts of our society saying an injustice was done here. Injustice is still being done and we acknowledge it and we want to repair it and make it better. You've said that on a product level, there are things that big banks can do, but that they don't do. Didn't J.P. Morgan make a $30 billion pledge to address the racial wealth gap, which included the practice of making mortgage loans? What happened? Sure, that's a that's a great example. J.P. Morgan, um, after George Floyd's murder in 2020, made a pledge to address the racial wealth gap by um, committing and pay attention to the words that I'm using, $30 billion toward that effort. What does committing mean? Well, it doesn't mean giving. Uh-huh. Most of that money was business that JP Morgan already does, including making mortgage loans, making loans to developers for which they get a, a low income housing tax credit. Um, the mortgage part specifically, though, was really interesting because the big banks are abysmal when it comes to the percentage of their borrowers in mortgages who are black. Um, JP Morgan, before they made this pledge, was at 4%. So of all the mortgages that they made, only 4% of them went to black borrowers. The pledge was to uh, increase mortgage lending to black borrowers and other minorities. They managed to get the percentage of all of their mortgages that went to blacks um, up to five after the pledge in 2021. The, um, The thing is there are other mortgage lenders out there who have higher percentages and that's that's because they are focused on specifically trying to accommodate black borrowers who for structural reasons, because credit scores reflect decades of discrimination, because home values in black neighborhoods are lower, can't compete under the normal circumstances of a credit underwriting process. Um, these, JP Morgan, instead of putting a whole price tag on its effort to increase financial activity um, in minority communities and increase its services to black customers, could have said, we will increase the percentage forever. We will change our practices forever to make this better. That's something that they could they could wake up tomorrow and do right now. The problem is they say they can't do that because those kinds of accommodations just aren't profitable. Didn't J.P. Morgan uh, and some other major banking institutions have ties to slavery, also Citibank, Bank of America? Do they acknowledge that? Yes. In the early 2000s, there were laws adopted, enacted by different municipalities. The state of California, for instance, the city of Chicago, the city of Milwaukee, These were called slavery era disclosure ordinances. And they said to companies, if you want to do business here with our municipality, you have to first research your ties to slavery and disclose any predecessors you may have had that profited from slavery. 
the big banks all undertook this research effort because they wanted to keep doing big business with these cities and states. Uh, the, the details, though, are where they managed to tweak things and make things the best for them and the worst for transparency and justice, basically. They decided... First of all, they had to decide what it meant to profit from slavery, and they also had to decide who their real predecessors were. For instance, Wells Fargo was really upset at having to accept that its predecessors included banks that it had had to absorb in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but eventually, banks, including Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, and Bank of America, after much hesitation, all admitted that they had had predecessors who had profited from slavery in some way. The exception was Citi. Citi said, we, we looked into it and none of our predecessors profited from slavery. They neglected to mention that the de facto grandfather of the entire organization was a guy named Moses Taylor who made his personal fortune in the Cuban sugar trade in the 1830s, which was all based on slave labor. And without Moses Taylor's help, it's very possible that Citi's predecessor at the time would have gone under in a financial panic. But because it was Moses Taylor's wealth and because it's murky exactly how much of his own money he put into the bank to prop it up during these financial panics, Citi decided it didn't count. And they didn't talk about him as having any ties to slavery. They called him a commodities trader. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest today is Emily Flitter of The New York Times. Her book, The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America, is published by One Signal Publishers. Uh, you write, report on a wide range of victims, single mothers to professional athletes to employees themselves, people who were scammed, lied to, defrauded by the systems they trusted with their money, and then silenced when they attempted to speak out and seek reform. So are we still facing a major hurdle here? Yes, we are. We really are. And the sad thing is that if you're like me, my skin color makes it's so easy for me to get things done. Because you, even, you are white. I am white. Um, I go into a bank and I have no problem. And it's easy for somebody like me to walk around and go through life and not even understand how much somebody else might be struggling right next to me. But I just want to tell you what kinds of responses I've been getting from this book. I heard from somebody who wrote me an email a couple of weeks ago who said, I just finished listening to the audio book version of your book and I had to pull over my car <laughs> and write to you. I feel like the survivors of sexual assaults must feel when people finally acknowledge what happened to them. I feel validated. I've, hear, I've heard this over and over again from people from all economic backgrounds who are black, who are saying, I had a bad experience at a bank or, you know, this is where my family came from and this is how hard it was for them um, to, to get this rental apartment or to pay this mortgage. 
all kinds of um, stories are coming to me from people who are also telling me that it's not fixed. The problem still exists. I was talking to um, a, a former employee of a big uh, wealth manager, um, and she said, I really wish the big banks would just stop gaslighting us. Hmm. But you also write that some of the people you first met because they were discriminating, experiencing discrimination have found ways that victims of discrimination and bias can do uh, to carve a path for themselves. Uh, what, what kinds of things are they and can those be applied to uh, other people who uh, are experiencing similar problems? It's true. I end the book with individual stories of people who experience discrimination and how they how they're doing now. The the common theme is that they are going solo. Um, I'll focus on a really inspirational version of this story. I wrote about a woman named Jacqueline Campbell. Mm -hmm. She was a uh, an employee of J.P. Morgan Chase, and she actually saw what was going on among uh, black financial advisors at Chase, that they were being sidelined and um, they were being sort of kept away from opportunities. And while she was working for JP Morgan Chase, she was managing a team of financial advisors. The entire um, group of black financial advisors who were working at the bank at the time got together and sued the bank in a class action lawsuit claiming this kinds of discrimination. Jack actually loved working at JP Morgan. And so she went to them and said, I, I'm a black woman. I understand what's going on here. Let me help fix this. And for a brief time, she became the head of diversity for the financial, the group of financial advisors. She realized that she actually couldn't change things the way she wanted to. So she left and she founded her own wealth management firm. Now she recruits financial advisors who are in the later stages of their careers and hoping to retire soon. And she makes sure that they pass on their clients to black financial advisors and other financial advisors of color. She says, we deserve every millionaire that we didn't get. And what she means is white financial advisors for the history of the industry have been showing up at the start of their careers and being handed clients to manage. Black financial advisors deserve the same thing, and that's her goal now. That's her mission. She's in Detroit, and she has a firm called Alexander Legacy Wealth Management, and that's the kind of solution that she's found. It can't be applied to everyone because the sort of implication of her story and the other stories that I tell at the end of the book is that you can't fit it. You cannot fit into these big institutions. And the only way you're really going to find success is if you're alone. And I don't think we should settle for that. We have just a couple of minutes left. You report, you tell about a young African-American who had a red hoodie who wanted to withdraw $1,750 from his college checking account. And he was uh, refused ultimately. Now, if he hadn't been wearing a hoodie, might that have changed things? Uh, should people, I mean, I know this is an awful thing to suggest, but should people be aware of how they're dressed? If you want to have a check cast, should you show up in a suit and tie or in a, in a very nice dress? You know, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because when I was 
trying to find out what I would recommend as a solution to this problem, I also thought, what if we change the culture in bank branches? What if we make it look like a Verizon store? You know, the the employees are all wearing like you know, colored polo shirts and and like casual pants, and it's the the atmosphere is is changed. But I I actually asked people, I asked black people who had experienced bad treatment in bank branches, like, do you think it would change if everybody just dressed differently? And they were like, no, no, <laughs> that's not the it's point. My it's skin not the color. problem. It was just yeah, skin color. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Although there are people in the corporate world who are black who know that they can't be seen in anything but the best clothes, the most impeccable look um, if they want to be taken seriously. So that is, you know, clothes do signal a lot. Now, this story is going to continue past the publication of this book. Are you receiving uh, messages from people who have read the book and uh, and want you to report on it in The New York Times? Yes, um, I continue to cover the issue. Um, Everyone who's listening now should stay tuned for something new coming out in the next couple of weeks. If the New York Times doesn't go on strike. We're on strike today. We have a one day walkout. It's going on right now. Um, And we're asking people to refrain from interacting with the the Times uh, for the day um, in solidarity with our demand for fair pay. Um, But I will definitely be on this beat on this subject for a really long time. Um, and I also think that uh, the financial industry should be on notice because I've already heard from a regulator saying that they read the book and plan to change how they regulate mm. banks according to it. Great. And thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Emily Flitter, who covers banking and Wall Street for The New York Times, about her book, White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black Americans from One Signal Publishers. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this show. If you've just discovering this program, would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we are right now going through some serious financial difficulties, paying the rent and paying for our tower. So if you want to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and all the other shows we have here, we're asking uh, our listeners to make a contribution at at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't get anywhere else and if as i said earlier if you make a contribution of 50 dollars or more in the name of leonard lopate at large right now you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing the white wall by emily flitter you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a bai buddy and we'll say thank you to anyone who becomes a bai buddy for ten dollars fifteen dollars twenty dollars whatever uh with a bai 
tote bag. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listener donations. BAI is the only station on New York Radio Dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. So make help us keep going with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be Alan Rivlin discussing the book Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. We'll see you then. Thank you.